Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. John, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos and on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. This is the, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word which you promise brings life to wherever it finds itself. We pray that your word would breed life in our own hearts, that you'd use your word to comfort the afflicted, that you'd use your word to bind us together. In the name of Christ, amen. You know, just a, a couple days ago, I found myself uh, in a gas station locally, one I, I frequent, and the guy working in the Station was oddly talkative to me at this time. His store was empty. It was a slow day, I guess, for him. And he started just talking to me about how you can't trust anyone anymore. It's a good conversation to have with a stranger. Uh, but apparently I have the trusting face, so he could tell me he doesn't trust anybody. So uh, he, he started talking to me about, you know, media and all this stuff. And you can't, you just can't trust anything anymore. And, and he started talking about just things are so bad right now. And then he says this kind of strange phrase. He said, I wish I was 95, not 65. And I said to him, I said, why would you, why would you wish that? And uh, he said, because it's so bad. I just, I just want to die. And I was like, man, that is so sad. And so I, I, took, I actually took a few moments. The store was empty. And I talked to him about the hope of Christ and, uh, and the hope of the future and the hope that we have in, in the life in Christ, despite how bad uh, things might seem. And he kind of looked at me and he just started talking to me about how bad everything was. And so maybe, you know, it's sunk in a little bit. Next time I pop in there, I'll, I'll, find, <laughs> I'll find out how he's doing. But, you know, as I walked away from that, that encounter, and as I was thinking about it, um, you know, one of the things that, 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 that I thought about was that he's not alone in his sentiment, is he? And many people look at the world circumstances out there that they can't control. They look at their own, their own lives and, and their own messes in their own lives. And sometimes they, it's easy to give up because things are so hard. And you throw your hands up in the air and you say, it's so bad, what, what, what could I do? What could I possibly do to make this better? 
It seems so overwhelming. The problems of this world, they're impossible for us to overcome. Even just thinking about it, even just talking about it now might, might make you feel weary. Just, just imagining all the world's problems and there's, they're countless, right? It makes us weary to even think about. And it's not just the people out there, outside the church that struggle with this kind of weariness. But I think in the church, we can lose hope too. We can lose our, our vision for the story that's unfolding before us. You know, and, and one of the purposes of Revelation, this book that we've just kind of entering into, one of its purposes is written that you might find hope in the midst of hardship, in the midst of tribulations. You know, uh, Revelation is a survivor's guide of sorts, meant to help you walk through the valleys of life by giving us confidence of what's going to happen in the end of the story. And as we continue to walk into Revelation this morning, today will serve as kind of a second introduction into this book. If you missed the first introduction, I do encourage you to, to hop online and, and listen to it. It'll help orient you to, to the to way in which we're approaching Revelation through the next couple of summers. Um, but but this morning, we're going to kind of focus on the, the audience of Revelation. You know, verse 4 tells us this is written to the, the seven churches in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. And then verses, verse 11 actually names these churches. And then in a couple weeks, you know, each Sunday will be a sermon dedicated on to, she's going to be speaking to, to, to these churches individually. He writes kind of specific notes to each of these churches. He names them. And as we focus on these churches that he's writing to, one of the things we're going to focus on this morning is their circumstances in life. You know, they were a people who found themselves in a dire situation. In fact, it was far worse than, than our present day situation in our country. Uh, and they, they too were tempted to give in to despair, to lose hope. And they needed to know how to endure, how to survive. And this is why Jesus brings this vision to John, that his people might be a people who are prepared for the tribulations that are coming so that they can endure through them. And not merely in endure, but to do so with great confidence, with peace, not with fear with, of what's coming, but with a profound hope. And this is what he's training them. And as, as we consider this context, and as we dive into this context, I think you'll actually find a lot of parallels between the context of Revelation and our own context today. And Jesus not only is sending this right to the first century Christians so they can endure during this hard time, but he's also sent him to, to us and to the church throughout history, that the, the, the church throughout history might endure. And, you know, the history of the church is marked by many tribulations. And uh, in the future, church beyond us, once we're dead and the church is continuing, will be marked by future tribulations. And Jesus wants his people to endure through them. And so, again, borrowing from the work of many who have gone before as we, as we explore the context of Revelation this morning... We're going to look just at, at two things. The first thing we're going to look at is the tribulations of the early church. Like, what was it? That, that, what were the tribulations that they were facing when this book was written? And then, secondly, we're going to look at surviving the tribulation. How do we survive it when these tribulations do come? When the hard times do come, what does it look like for us to actually survive? And so, first, the the tribulation of the early church. And before I just tell you what these tribulations were. Your tribulation itself is a word that means affliction, distress. Uh, we're going to spend a few moments uh, uh, to, to understand, to go back to understand the historical context of what led to this current circumstance. 
So this first point would probably not really feel like a sermon. It'll feel a little bit more like a historical lecture. I apologize, but I think it's actually really important because scripture is actually really concerned with history. Um, You know, one of the things the Bible does is it actually tells us our history. It's not just history, but it is history. It tells the story of the world and how we fit into it. And so in order to understand kind of the context and the the messiness and the true nature of this tribulation that's happening when revelation comes, we're going to have to back up a little bit and and consider the history of God and his people. Um, You know, one of the the key storylines in all the scripture post-Genesis 3 is a relationship between God, the God of scripture, Yahweh, right? And the other superpowers in the world that rise up. You know, there's lots of smaller ones, but some of the main ones are, you know, first you get the Egyptians, right, who enslaved God's people in, in Exodus. And then you have the, the Assyrians, they, they rise up and they take the northern half of the kingdom of, of Israel into exile. And then after them, you know, Babylon rises up and destroys uh, the, the first temple and, and takes the southern kingdom into exile in the sixth century. And, you know, when the kingdom was, when the, the temple was destroyed by Babylon and the Jews were taken into Babylon, one of the things that happened, one of the byproducts of, of all these exiles is that the Jewish people began to be scattered all over the known land, all over the, the, the Mediterranean um, area. And even when the Jewish people were finally able to return back to their land, uh, many of them uh, didn't go back. And so you have Jewish people living all over uh, in the known area and, uh, and a scattered people living under pagan rule. Uh, after Babylon took them out, they'd, still, they'd, they'd constantly been living under pagan rule. From the time of 6th century to Jesus' time when the Romans had come in, uh, and the Romans are now in charge, the Jewish people have been learning how to survive in difficult circumstances. And so with the, with the temple destroyed and away from the promised land, what the Jewish people did is they would build synagogues. It was kind of like church planting. Wherever they would go, they had these places where they gather to worship. And, uh, and, and so you have these synagogues, pockets of worshiping communities all over the, the known land, wherever the Jewish people were, all learning to live under foreign rule. And you know, one of the things that comes to us in Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah from Daniel was that the Messiah was, was told he would come and, and free the people from their, their pagan uh, oppressors. And so this is something they longed for. So this is something you have to understand. That, but by the time Revelation comes to us, this has been hundreds of years of buildup of the Jewish people living under foreign rule with the expectation that there would come, come a day where there's a Messiah that's going to come and rescue them from these people. Uh, and actually, many different Messiahs, fake Messiahs, came to power. They, they gathered some people with them, and they charged, you know, in to take them, and they were all thwarted because they were all false. They were all fake. So this is something that they're waiting for. So this is kind of in the air even when Jesus shows up. And he, this is why you have to understand the expectations of the disciples were so off, uh, even with, with Jesus, because this is what they expected him to do, but, but what does Jesus do when he comes on the scene? When he comes into the city, he actually doesn't criticize Rome. Who does he criticize? He criticizes Jerusalem. Uh, he pronounces judgment, not on Rome, but on, on his own people. He pronounces judgment on Jerusalem and the temple for their unfaithfulness, which is another theme throughout Revelation that's gonna come up, is that Jerusalem is actually the new Babylon. Uh, they're acting the part of the harlot, the enemy. But, and so when Jesus comes, he ends up creating a split in the people. You know, after his death and resurrection, there was those who decided to follow Jesus and those who turned their back on Jesus and decided to, to, to continue to try to fight against the, the worldly powers in Rome. 
And the book of Acts kind of unfolds this history of the early church for us where there's those people who followed Jesus and those who didn't, which created these two camps of people who still wanted to fight to get Rome out of there. And there was the, and, and the Christians who weren't as worried about that anymore. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, there was increasing tension that happened uh, in the first century church. Centuries of tension living under foreign rule with this expectation to be free was building until it spilled over and there was three key events that happened uh, in, the, in the first century um, that help us understand the tribulations that are happening that, that John is speaking about. First, uh, under, under Nero, the, the first systematic persecution of Christians happened. This began in 64 AD. So Nero blamed Christians for this massive fire that burned much of Rome. You've likely heard of, of Nero before. If not, he was, he was famous for using Christians as human torches during his parties. And it kind of set the precedence that someone could be put to death because they were Christian. So this is a key event that happened uh, after the writing of Revelation. Um, secondly, the Jewish wars began in 66 AD. And so all that tension had finally built up and spilled over to where a physical revolution happened. And it lasted until the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And, and third, in the end of the 60s, there was profound turnover in leadership in, in Rome. Nero committed suicide. And then in a span of, of, of one year, there were four emperors in Rome. There's Galba, Otho, who committed suicide as well, Vitellius, and, and Ves, Vespasian. And so you have this wild turnover of your major world power, and you have all this chaos, all this persecution, people getting killed for what they believe. You know, sometimes when you read history, it's easy to not let the craziness of a particular moment sink in, because it didn't happen to us. You're like, oh yeah, this is... Next page, you know? But imagine for a second if this did happen. What would you think? Like if we went through four presidents in a year and two of them committed suicide, what would you think? Or if there was mass persecution in a civil war all at the same time where thousands of people are getting killed, you would think the end of the world is coming, right? The world was in complete upheaval. And it's in this moment that revelation comes to us. In the midst of these profound tribulations where the whole world was being turned upside down by, by Christ. And so the question we need to ask is, well, what was this time like for the Christians in the church? What was this like for those who were following Jesus in this moment? Well, on the Roman side, the Romans said, you, you have to worship uh, the emperor. But Christians say, no, we can't do that. We can honor him. We'll obey laws as much as we can, but we can't worship him. Jesus alone is Lord. And so they were thrown in prison. They were exiled like John was because of their worship of Jesus. And at the same time, the Romans, you know, were trying to figure out who, just who these Christians were. They didn't understand them. They didn't know, are these guys a threat? Are they not? You know, because they're in a war with these Jewish people and, and all the synagogues that were set up all over the place. So the Romans were seen as like little terror cells, places of revolt all around the kingdom. And so and to, to make matters more confusing for the Christians is that the, the early church was largely made up of Jewish people. And so the, the Romans couldn't really tell the difference between the two. And so the Jewishness of the early church became a liability. And you add into that that most of the church actually grew up Jewish, right? And their families would reject them for their faith in Jesus, causing more persecution for the church. They were getting it from both sides of this war that was happening from the Romans and from the Jews. This is their affliction. This was their tribulation. The world was falling apart all around them. A world was dying. They were hated by everyone. They were a troublesome and confusing bunch of people. They didn't fit in. 
They didn't fit into either side of this war, which made them homeless exiles in this political sphere. And, uh, and we read here that, right, John is experiencing this exile firsthand. You know, verse 9 tells us that he was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was exiled on this island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And this word testimony here is the same root as the word martyr, indicating, listen, he's there because he's been preaching the gospel. And so he was exiled for it. He wasn't given in to the Romans uh, in, in, their, in their rules against him, and so he got put on this island. This is the tribulation that the church is experiencing. It's fierce. And uh, before we move on to talk about how do you survive this kind of fierce tribulation, I do want to gingerly step into the taboo conversation of politics for a moment. I know you're just not, I'm not supposed to talk about this. You can write me all sorts of angry letters after uh, but I will say the Bible doesn't let us not talk about politics <laughs> because the Bible actually cares about our politics. It cares about every aspect of our life. And politics is a word that actually indicates, it's talking about the public sphere of life together. Of course, scripture has things to say about how our life ought to be shared together. And Revelation might be one of the most political books that's in all of scripture. And so this, just to take a moment, I, I wanna work to apply this first century context to our own context, in our own moment. Have you ever felt similar tensions uh, in our political realm that you, you just don't really fit into the system that we exist in? Have you ever felt that, that tension that you just don't belong, that you don't fit? You often will have conversation about the way our, our country's governed and in the public sphere of life, and it will probably go something like this. You'll say, yeah, I agree with you here. I agree with you here. I see what you're saying here, but I, I don't agree with you on this point. But there's often, that's their conversation, yeah, yeah, no, 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 definitely not that. And so there's always hedging, confusing people because you don't fit into any of the boxes, not clearly. And uh, you know, C.S. Lewis uh, in his uh, book, Miracles, says it like this. He says, Christianity faced with popular religion, I just wanna say, I think politics actually has become a, a popular religion for us in our own time. But he says this, uh, Christianity faced with popular religion is continually troublesome. It finds itself forced to reply again and again, well, not quite like that. I would hardly put it that way. This troublesomeness doesn't make it to be true, but if it were true, it would be bound to have this troublesomeness. Now, Lewis is saying that if the gospel is true, we should expect it not to fit into the world's systems. Otherwise, the gospel is, is only offering something that the world already has. You know, following Jesus is gonna cause problems for you, for me, for the church. You know, most of you have probably felt this, especially for those of you who work in any kind of public sphere. You do not fit into the world's systems and it causes friction for you because in the spectrum of the, the, the politics and what's considered right and wrong, even when we find ourselves in strong agreement, there's always gonna be things for us to criticize. You know, on the, on the conservative side, we agree with the Constitution that the limited power of government can be a, a very good thing because the heart of man is evil and it needs to be restrained. But we can easily critique the language that often happens that sets up America as if it were a city on a hill. American exceptionalism that, and we critique this not because we don't care about the place that we live, we all should care about whatever country we find ourselves in, but because, because Christianity is not bound by national lines. Right? It's the, the church is the city on the hill, not any state. States come and go, countries come and go, the church will be here for forever. 
And so we can critique that side. On, on the liberal side of the political spectrum, we might be drawn to some of the systems that are meant to care for the poor and the outcasts, which is a, a very biblical idea on its surface. The Bible cares more than any of us here in this room about those who are in the margins looking in. It's a very biblical idea. Yet we have to critique their view on sexual ethics, which are entirely anti-biblical because they promote an identity that is entirely defined by self and nothing outside of myself can tell me who I am and which leads to all sorts of evils in our world. From abortion to gender reassignment churches to a general promiscuous lifestyles. These are evils we have to name. We will never fit into either side of this political war that is in our own country. And Christians never have. And we have to resist the natural survival instinct when this happens to try to fit in and to not make any noise. Listen, we have to resist the urge also to throw our hands up and just not engage at all. You have been redeemed, you're redeemed people to make trouble in this world. Because what you believe is troublesome to the powers of this world. Listen, John wasn't exiled and the apostles weren't murdered because they disengaged but because they unsettled the powers that be, right? It cost Jesus his life and it will cost our lives too. We, and we aren't troublesome just because, to, to, because we, we take what's good from either side, but because we are speaking an entirely different language from both sides of the arguments, right? We see the world differently. We see our role in the world differently. We see that there's a sovereign over every other sovereign and his name is Jesus, and so like the early church, we obey where we can. We, we, are, we seek to be good citizens, but we do not budge in our worship and in our ethics. We will not say yes to the world's leaders when it goes against the commands of the Lord. And you know, the problem with preaching about this kind of stuff is everyone hears it through their own filter. And so some of you are like, yeah, I agree with you. And some of you are like, I don't like that you just said that one thing. And that's okay, talk to me after the service. I can't nuance this enough in this moment. But I do wanna point out, we don't cause trouble for the sake of causing trouble but for the sake of the gospel going out. That was their desire here. That's why John was on an island. We don't cancel people, but we actually love those who disagree with us. It was because John had love for his people that were his enemies, that he preached the gospel, that they might believe. He didn't do it so he would actually get, he wasn't trying to get exiled. He was trying to preach the gospel that people would hear, that they would believe. And so this is what we're called to do, to love those who we disagree with, to love our enemies, to speak truth, desiring them to actually know the truth. And then we should not complain about the consequences. You know, you never see the apostles complain about being imprisoned. All right, the martyrs of the early church are not there whining. Why me? This isn't fair. They don't do that. But they saw it as an opportunity to identify with Christ. The apostles preached boldly, knowing what would happen. So we're called to be bold. We ought to lean into our systems, fight for good, fight for the expansion of the gospel, and live with whatever that brings. And since we've already been talking about religion and politics, we might as well just talk about money for a little bit, yeah? That's a joke, we're not gonna talk about money. Just lighten up, it's all, it's all good. But you, know, but you know, Christians throughout history have felt these tensions. This is not new, it's not new to us. In fact, we have it easy. I just wanna stress that. We're kinda wimpy when it comes to feeling the tensions of the world. We, we can all recognize that we're a little wimpy, right? And that's okay, you know, we've never experienced deep, profound persecution, so we're bound to be a little wimpy, but we need to toughen up a little bit. It's okay, fight the good fight, preach the gospel. These tensions will come and go throughout our history, but whenever you live with these tensions, it becomes weary, right? It's tiresome. So what do we do with these tensions? How do we survive it when these tribulations come, when they rear their ugly heads? How does the church survive? 
How do we fight against our instincts to just fit in with the systems in place or to throw our hands up and disengage? So this is the second thing I want to talk about is surviving the tribulation, surviving the tribulation. And, uh, and there's, there's three things here that I think John points out that are key for us to survive. Um, and the first of which is family. The first thing you need to survive is a family. And this family that helps us survive begins with the families of families, the triune God. Look at verse four with me again. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on the earth. This all starts with he who was and is and is to come which is a reference to the, the first person of the Trinity, the Father, along with the seven spirits, he says, who are before this throne, which is talking about the Holy Spirit, right? This isn't about seven different spirits in seven different churches, but, but the, the one spirit who dwells within each of the, dwells within the, all of the church. And, you know, the number seven is a number that comes up often in Revelation. These numbers are symbolic of things. And seven is a, is a number that represents completion, perfection. And so this is talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit that is before the throne. And then from Jesus Christ, God's son, who invites us into his family. And it tells us here, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father. Right? Jesus has brought us into his family and it is through Christ that we are made his kingdom. So we need a family and the foundation of our family is that we are brought into God himself, the triune God, brought into that, the, the triune dance. And he surrounds us. And he surrounds us with everyone else whom he has drawn to himself, the church. This is what John is writing in verse nine. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. This is a profound thing. He says, John, your brother. Right? He doesn't write this and I'm John the apostle. I'm John, the, the elder who's gonna be over top of you. He's not trying to be authoritative in this moment. He's saying, I'm your brother. I'm your family. When you're suffering and experiencing the homelessness of this life, the first thing you need is a family. Because what happens in a family? In a family, you share everything that you have. And in a family, you actually have a home. You share everything, even your tribulations. And this is what he says here. It's not just that I'm your brother, but he says, I'm your partner in this. Which partner is the same word that's used in the beginning of Acts when it says they, had, they shared and had all things in common. That's the same word used here, that he's sharing, having all things in common. He's saying, I, your brother, am sharing all things, even your tribulations, even your sufferings. You know, one of the, the enemy's uh, greatest strategies in the midst of our suffering is to make you think that you're alone in it. It's to make you think you're the only one who's ever suffered in that way and no one else wants to hear about your suffering so you should probably just go hide in the corner and suffer by yourself and not bother anybody. I'm sure we've all experienced that before. This is one of the great strategies of the enemy. But what if you and myself started to believe that you had a whole community that wasn't just here gathered on Sunday with you but actually wanted to share in your sufferings? That, that actually wanted to, to share your sufferings with you, to partner with you in your sufferings. Friends, this is the only way you're gonna survive when tribulations come is when you don't try to take those tribulations on yourself alone. This is how you survive, being united to the triune God and his community. You are not alone. And you can't make it through tribulations, through trials on your own. 
you need a family, and you have one as you're invited into the communion with the triune God in the church. So first thing to survive is a family. Secondly, it's having patient endurance. The second thing we need here is patient endurance. Verse nine again, he says, uh, talking about sharing the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The second thing we need is endurance. Again, the, 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 the word for patient endurance in Greek, it's actually just one word, and it's a word that's used seven times in Revelation, which means something. It means it's going to be a primary theme for us. It's going to come up time and time again, this idea of enduring tribulations. Because Jesus wants his people to actually make it through, to endure through the tribulations that come. And you know, one of the more important things to describe the, the Christian life, as Eugene Peterson puts it, is a, a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is a life of endurance. Psalm 27, right? Wait for the Lord. This is setting up our expectations, isn't it? Endurance assumes that, listen, this is not going to be easy for you. But you don't need much endurance to walk forward during communion each week, but you do to run 100 miles. I guess. I've never done it, but I, it looks hard. But the, the call to endurance is a call to the, the hard and often mundane work of the Christian. So it involves the simple things of show up Sunday after Sunday, even if you don't feel like it, because one of the ways you learn to endure is in the corporate worship, of being reminded that you are with a people gathered around one table, united under one baptism, being reminded of the, the gospel. And worship is actually a training ground for your endurance in the world. Don't underestimate what happens in this room every Sunday as we gather. It also means just keep on doing the simple things, following the simple commandments of the Lord. Love your spouse if you're married. Raise your children well if you have children. Love your neighbor. Labor in your vocations as unto the Lord. Keep pursuing and loving, even when it's difficult. Keep walking one foot in front of the other in, in community. This is endurance, doing the simple things, the simple things that God has called us to. It's not gonna be easy, but you're not alone. And endurance happens in the context of a triune God that surrounds us with a family to endure alongside us with. And the reason that we can actually do this, the re reason that we actually can endure is not because of our own strength, but because of the one that we are found in. He who has gone before us and who has finished the race already in our behalf, our elder brother, Jesus. This is the third and final thing you need to survive. The tribulation is being united to Jesus. Again, at the end of verse nine, he says, the patience endurance that are in Jesus. You know, John is able to share, right, to partner in these tribulations and endurance and the God's kingdom because they are in Jesus. Right, the, the key to surviving the tribulations is that we are facing now and, and the ones to come is having a king who loves us. Now look back at the description of who Jesus is, who this king is in, in verse five. He says, from Jesus Christ, the, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings, the earth, right? The faithful witness, remember witness is the same word as martyr, right? He's the, the firstborn of the dead which is saying that, that Jesus has already endured through the tribulations. He has walked through it already and he endured it until the end and he, right, he stayed on the cross to his death. He didn't take himself off early. He was faithful. But he has a third descriptor here, that the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
Not only has he been a faithful witness conquering death, but in doing so, he is the ruler of all the kings of the earth, disarming them. You know, it's interesting, in, in Rome, the way they would typically quell an uprising was they would take the leader of that uprising, they would crucify them publicly, and then the rest of their followers would be like, yeah, don't want that to happen to me, I'll go home, you know, put the pitchfork away, and usually it would, it would work. But what does Jesus do with the cross? Jesus takes the cross, the strongest weapon of the enemy, and he uses it to defeat his enemy. That's what Jesus does. This man, Jesus, who endured all things, it says in verse five at the bottom here, to, that to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So Jesus loves us, freeing us from our sins by his blood. Look at the language here is not past tense. It doesn't say he loved you, but it says he loves you. It's a present tense reality. It's a continual, perpetual love that does not run out for his children. A love that you can't run or hide from. It is his love that has guided his people throughout history, through tribulations, and it, it is the same love that guides you now. You are strengthened in this love together with the family. And we endure together knowing that Jesus endured. He gives grace to his children to endure as well. Listen, everyone in this room will always be a bit homeless in this world. We're always gonna be exiles. But in Christ, you have been given a family. Jesus is your elder brother who loves you and who leads you. He knows how wearisome life as an exile can be because he experienced it himself. Right? He, he knows the temptation to give in to the powers of this world because he himself was tempted by the devil. But our faithful witness, our Lord and King and our brother Jesus went before us that we might endure in him. He is at the finish line, so to speak, encouraging you to come on, strengthening you as you struggle to endure. He reminds you, listen, it's my love that will carry you through. It's my love that will give you hope in the darkest of circumstances. You may not have a, a place here that fit, to fit in perfectly in this world, but it's because you're from another world. You're part of a different kingdom, born of a different kingdom, and your home is with Jesus. And he says, let that be enough. And what this does for us, I think, is it helps frame our expectations, doesn't it? Even as we preach the gospel and bear witness to Jesus and seek the transforming power of the gospel to take root in Yakima and in the world, there's a recognition that even though we do this, there will always be opposition to our work. It will not be easy. We will experience tribulations. Our work will never fully be finished until that glorious day when Jesus returns and heaven and earth are one. And until that day, we fight to do as Paul tells the church, to not grow weary in doing good, but to continue on to endure as the church has always endured because of him who strengthens it, Jesus Christ. May we be a people who endure, who walk faithfully as Christ walked, who share in each other's sufferings and tribulations as a family, who patiently endure in this world as we're united to him who has gone before us. Amen. Pray with me. God of all mercy and all grace, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would strengthen us, that you would give us endurance for the race that you've walked out, that you've put before us. And as we endure, that we would endure with much hope and much love, knowing that you are our good and gracious King who loves us, your children. Help us to believe these deep truths and to walk in them in every aspect of our lives. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.